0: Hello and welcome to the Voices of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Gill, and I appreciate you checking us out. No matter how you found us, uh, thank you. If you are brand new to the podcast, I hope that you will find what we are doing uh, entertaining and educational at the same time. Uh, At least that's what we're shooting for. And uh, if you are back for more, if you've listened to some of our previous podcasts, I thank you for for returning. And I trust that you've gotten some value out of this, uh, uh, or you wouldn't be back. (laughs) We do appreciate it. A little bit about who we are. We are the Voices of Freedom. We are a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience. And our mission here at the Americans in Wartime Experience and at the Voices of Freedom is to honor, educate, and inspire. We are currently located online on our website at www.americansinwartime.org. There you will be able to find out a little bit about who we are, what we're doing, uh, what the future holds for the, for us. And uh, if you'd be so inclined to do so, you can donate to our project to help uh, keep to help us keep doing what we're doing, uh, the Americans in wartime is uh, was was founded by a gentleman named Alan Coors, and uh, in one of our previous podcasts, we interviewed Alan and got some back uh, back story on who he is, uh, how he came to uh, be a tank collector. You heard me right, Alan Coors is a tank collector. Uh, I don't mean model tanks; I mean the legitimate, real tanks like Sherman tanks and uh, and the like. Uh, He began collecting those vehicles in the 1980s. He started having open houses where he showcased his vehicles in the early 90s. And then in the early 2000s, he decided that uh, he wanted to open a museum um, where he could showcase more of his vehicles. Um, But if you listen to the interview we did with Alan and, and talk to him, it's not really about the vehicles, as impressive as they are. The vehicles are kind of a way to get people in the door, to get people's attention, to get them interested uh, in what we're doing so that he can tell the story of the American soldier. Um, so that's that's who we are. That's what we do. Uh, the museum is currently being built in Dale City, Virginia. Uh, we're currently online. You can take a look at our tanks um, and, again, read a little bit about who we are and what we're doing. You can also go online on our website and you can listen to and watch some of our previous interviews. Uh, the Voices of Freedom conducts interviews with Americans in wartime, both veterans uh, and civilians. So the only criteria is really you have to have some kind of connection to a wartime event. Uh, maybe you served in Vietnam or you served in Grenada, you served in Afghanistan or Iraq um Obviously, you would have a, a connection there, or perhaps you are a witness uh, to that. Maybe you witnessed the events that took place on September 11th, or you are a civilian contractor that was overseas. Um, we've interviewed Rosie the Riveters and USO dancers from World War II. Uh, so we're pretty broad in who we interview. Again, as long as you have a wartime connection, you have a wartime story, we want to hear it. Uh, and more importantly, uh, your loved ones want to hear it. And those who are interested in history want to hear it. Because you were eyewitnesses to what happened. Your perspectives are different than anyone else's. Um, One of the things that we hear a lot from people is, well, I didn't really do anything, so I don't have a story to tell. Um, But that's not true. Everybody has a story to tell because everybody's perspective is different. Everybody comes from a different background. uh, And the way they see things, the way that it affects them is different uh, than the next person. So... Um, those are the kinds of people that we interview here on the Voices of Freedom podcast. We showcase some of our interviews uh, so you can uh, listen to them uh, on the go in your car, as you are working out, uh, as you are making dinner. What you know, however, you listen to your podcast, uh, it just gives you another way to to hear these stories. So today's story, uh, today's interview is uh, with Dr. Butler. This interview was actually conducted back in two thousand eleven. Um, we've interviewed almost, uh, at the time of this recording, almost 700 veterans uh, and civilians who have a wartime story. And uh, D.R. Butler was one of the very first interviews that we did way back in 2011. We began interviewing at the, the latter half of 2010. So D.R. Butler has a very uh, interesting story. Uh, if you're familiar with the movie We Were Soldiers, uh, about the first fa- Cal. Correction: The first cavalry division uh, in Vietnam. Uh, that is the division that Dr. Butler served with, and in fact, he served with Colonel Hal Moore, who was played by Mel Gibson in that movie. Uh, Dr. Butler was a helicopter pilot, um, and he got to Vietnam in the early '60s, uh, right as the army was just testing whether or testing the viability of uh, of helicopters. Uh, in combat, uh, and he was with the 229th Aviation Battalion, which again is depicted in the movie We Were Soldiers. Uh, after the Battle of Le which is uh, depicted in that movie, uh, Hal Moore uh, was promoted to colonel and then assigned to be the br- brigade commander, uh, and now uh, Major D.R. Butler uh, was assigned to be with him when he was out in the field uh, and act as a liaison uh, and he spent a lot of time with uh, Colonel Moore, which he calls a very rewarding and a great honor uh, to have done so. Um, after that, uh, DR uh, um, finished out his career in the Army and, and eventually would retire and become a school teacher and a professor at George Mason University. Um, Dr. Butler is uh, he's a black man, uh, and that's only significant because when he was, Uh, first entering in the army, um, back in the 1960s, uh, things were a lot different than they are now. In fact, when DR was five years old in 1939, uh, he told his father that he wanted to be a pilot, uh, in the military. And his, his father responded, quote, no colored man is going to be a pilot. Um, but that didn't dissuade, uh, DR because he had it, uh, He had a passion for aviation uh, and knew immediately that's what he wanted to do. So in 1947, President Truman integrated the services, and that pretty much opened the door for DR and other guys like him to become pilots. Uh, So he applied for flight school. He was accepted, and uh, he eventually uh, completed flight school uh, and, of course, got his wings, and the rest from there is history um, so this is a very, uh, very good interview with a gentleman that has, um, that was eyewitness to history an eyewitness to an event that, uh, was so significant that, uh, they made a movie about it. Um, so, uh, without me f- talking about it anymore, because you don't want to hear me talk about it, uh, I wasn't there. You want to hear from the person that was actually there. Uh, in this case, that's D.R. Butler. So, without me, uh, without further ado, I give you our interview with D.R. Butler. How are you doing, sir? Oh, just fine. I want to thank you for coming out again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. We appreciate it.
0: Um, what is your full name, date of
1: birth, where you were born? Full name is Douthard R. Butler. D o u t h a r d. The U is pronounced as a W. Douthard R. Butler. Um, date of birth is October the seventh, nineteen thirty-four. And born in a little town in Texas called Waxahachie, W-A-X-A-H-A-C-H-I-E. I spell it because most people can't. Waxahachie, Texas, what's it? It uh It's suburbs of Dallas. Suburbs of Dallas. Mm-hmm. How long did you live there? Uh, from birth through going to college in
0: 51. Oh. 51. Okay, very nice. Do you have any military
1: veterans in your family? Uh, brother was Air Force. That's the only one. Grandparents or father? No grandparents. Uh, at that time, my father, uh, World War II, uh, wasn't uh, medically able because, as a twelve-year-old kid, he lost one of his eyes, so he wasn't couldn't be drafted. But he did a lot of work in the munition factories in Fort Worth, Texas. I can tell you that okay. to support the war. <laughs> you
0: served in Korea.
1: I served in Korea in 62, uh, yeah. 63.
0: you remember where you were when you heard um, about the Korean War that was starting? and and.
1: Uh, yeah, I was just going to, uh, I was in high school, really, and I went to college in 51, and uh, I was 16 when I got there. So when I became 18 in college, uh, I was not draftable because I was in ROTC. That's the only thing that kept me from being drafted because I was already in ROTC, had finished two years and they said well we got you, you we're gonna get you two years of now. So when I finished uh, college in 55, the Korean War was pretty much uh, over. Right. The, what branch of service are you uh, Infantry slash aviation. <coughs> Uh, during the time when I came in, uh, we didn't have aviation branch. We had you know, certain branches were designated uh, uh, aviation. Could p- individuals could uh, could uh, could fly like TC, infantry, armor, and so forth. Why did you Why did you go into military? Why
0: did you What made you
1: decide? Well, uh, when I was five years old, I uh, wanted to be a pilot that was this 1939, and my father thought I was nuts. Uh, he said, at that time, he says, no colored man going to be a pop. You're out of your mind. You're going to go to college. You're going to come back here, and you're going to teach in the colored school system. And I said, that's not what I want to do. And he was not very nice about it, but we just dropped the subject. And uh, until uh, 47, when I was in the 10th grade, Truman integrated the armed forces, and I said... That's it. I can do it. And, uh, and uh, when I came into the Army in 55, uh, the first thing I did was apply for flight school. I got it, and I made it.
0: So it's something you
1: always want. to do. Always wanted to do. Uh, and I, I always remind my, my young people that you must have a dream or vision without neither will come true. If you have a dream or vision, uh, opportunities will come by. If you can relate that opportunity to a dream or vision, you'll grab it. If you can't, it has no—it seemed to have no value until several years from then. Then you go, why? Why did I do it back then? Where
0: did you um, enter your military training? Uh,
1: Fort Benning, infantry. Yeah. Basic infantry officer's course. And from there. From there, I stayed there because once I got flight school, they couldn't send me anywhere, and my and they assigned me to a flight class. So I left. I got to Benning in August of 55. I left there in April of 56, uh, en route to uh, Spence Air Base in Georgia. Stayed there three months, and I, they turned, sent me to Gary Air Force Base to finish up. And then from there, I went to Fort Rucker for to, to the tactical phase, and, and in November, the wings. How of planes were you Back in that time, uh, we had very few helicopters in the Army. So, primary flying was always fixed wing, the old uh, bird dog L 19, just did all your basic training and everything. And you,
0: did you have a preference of what you wanted to fly?
1: No, uh, once I got that, and but <coughs> timing is everything. Uh, I got to Fort Benning, I mean, I got to when I left uh, uh, Rucker going to Fort Hood, and this when they were, what do call the reorganization of the Army, when they were bringing. Helicopters to the to the army, and they created the an army aviation company for every division, and with that came uh, helicopters. So when I got to uh, Fort Hood in November in February, I was out of there, back to Fort Rucker for helicopter training, because I was going to be assigned to the, to the H-34s, uh, the Choctaws and uh, so I went right back to helicopter school and. Got there in February. In June, I was back to, back to Fort Hood, and then to Germany. You
0: remember hearing about the start of the war? What you were thinking?
1: With the Korean War, Vietnam, Vietnam War? <clears throat> no, I didn't. Uh, it didn't really. Well, I was involved in a lot of it because when I came out of Korea in '63, I went to the 11th Air Assault Test. And that was testing the air mobile concept. First time they ever tested the air mobile concept. Uh, we did that for two years, and then in April of '65, LBJ announced that the L- the uh, Air Assault Test was becoming the first cab division, and they would be going to Vietnam this summer. So, uh, if you see the movie, um, saw the movie We Were Soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, that's a good 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 feel for it because. The, the helicopter unit in that movie was my helicopter unit, 2 2 ninth. And uh, everything you see in there, we're getting ready to go to Vietnam, all of this was, was true.
0: And that was the first time the Army used helicopters, stand so I understand it.
1: Well, this first time they, they actually uh, tested, uh, actually put the air mobile concept to test in combat. And uh, after, for two years flying down there, you, you pretty much and we knew we were going to, um, to the uh, Central Highlands pretty much uh, and this is how I got to know uh, uh, Colonel Moore who subsequently became Jim Moore because he, he commanded at that time the first of the seventh uh, the, the movie uh, We Were Soldiers about it only about two days uh, I didn't fly that day because very few people flew that day to support that but after the, um, that fight Moore got promoted to full colonel Took over the the brigade, and uh, he asked for someone from the helicopter unit to be in the field with him when he was there all the time. And my battalion commander looked at me and said, "You're out of here," <laughs> and uh, which was uh, very rewarding career-wise because <clears throat> you got a chance to be with him when he ended decision making, and uh, he would depend on you to for the employment of the helicopters. And he was, I liked him because he was not a yes man. He hated. Yes, men. If you tell him yes, he, he wouldn't be around very long. He, he'd love you to argue with him until such point of the decision. He wanted to make sure that, that he didn't miss anything. This is a great great honor to work for him.
0: What was the thinking, your thinking, and thinking of others, uh, other pilots, when the Army decided they were going to use the helicopters the way they did? And that was the first time.
1: Oh, we, we had been toying with the concept, you know, with the little H-13s, and peeling, cause we had put uh, machine guns on the H-13s and things like that. Uh, we thought it was great. <coughs> we thought it was great. We didn't really... I don't know of any pilot that uh, took exception to it. Uh, we, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a new concept. We enjoyed it. We thought it was safe as anything. Uh, flying on top of trees at 10 feet is not bad. We uh, find that the trees are a tremendous protection uh, because when you're down in the trees, uh, you, the sound surrounds you, and you really don't know where it's coming from. And uh, you're traveling about 100 knots. And if a guy's going to, you know, he's trying to figure out like, when you're gone, you come and you're gone. And uh, I don't know of anyone that uh, had any 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 issues with it. um the only problem you had to really watch are those pilots who, uh, who were afraid they were going to be shot. And uh, you learn over there that when, you, when the bullet goes by you, it's traveling faster than the speed of sound. It's very difficult to hear with the rotor head anyway. But when you can hear that distinct crack, 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 crack. crack. Uh, those are the best sounds in the world because if you heard the crack, it's gone. The one that hits you, you never hear. But uh, we did have a few pilots was waiting for the one to hit them. A couple of days, they had, they're gone.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www americansinwartime.org. Remember the first first time you saw combat?
1: Yeah, it was Vietnam. Do you remember that day? Oh, I don't know. know. Uh, No, I don't remember any particular day. It was just, um, you went out, you flew a mission, and then once more um, got promoted and came back, which was in November. Later part of November, uh, most of my time was spent with him on the ground, and then I'd go up and fly a mission to get my time. But that was all I was flying.
0: When exactly did you get
1: to Vietnam with him? Uh, We went over, it's in '65. 50, oh, 50, oh, LBJ made his announcement in April of '65. Uh, we started moving uh, out of helicopters. Uh, flying them down to Mobile and to Jacksonville to put them on carriers. Those who went out of Mobile, which we did, my unit did, were, were on the uh, old World War II carriers. I went on to Croton. Those who went out of Jacksonville were on the carriers like the Boxer who could not get through the Panama Canal. They were too large, so they had to go around through the Suez Canal. So we went right through the Panama Canal. We we left uh, Benning and left. Bidding on uh, by bus, and you'll see that in the movie. <laughs> Going by bus, you go down and you got on the carrier. Um, we went through the Suez Canal, around Mexico, into Long Beach, refuel, and then out. Took us 35 days uh, to get there, and it was um, very interesting. We got about uh, when we got about a day or two out of uh, out of uh, of landing. Um, they would, what they call, uh decocoon the, the helicopters, take all the protection off and uh, crank them up. And, and we flew them off the carrier and into uh, Anke. And Anke was the base just opening up specifically for the first camp. And we went into there and then we, uh, and that was it. And we didn't, we were told we would not have a mission about right, I think 15 to 20, or 30 days to get us ready. But the 101st got in trouble. Uh, one of the the brigade, the battalion, got in trouble, and we had to get in there and get them out of there. One, one, I wouldn't know you. I think it was A Company or B Company. What rank did you
0: go, Brad?
1: As a captain, motorbo and I made major in December of '65. What was the
0: thought? Process. We know what Vietnam turned into. Mm-hmm. What, what was the thinking of, of, of the soldiers going into Vietnam? What were, what were you thinking it was going to be? You know, short war or in and out? What were
1: you thinking? I don't think. Um, yeah, I knew of no one. Uh, we never got into that. Uh, when you get at that level, you you're so mission oriented. You know, you want to get the job done. You will sit here to do a job. Let's get the job done. Um, you had to, uh, a lot of things you had to learn. Uh, you, you couldn't trust anybody. Uh, like, he had one young fella, a Vietnamese, uh, went up with a, uh, loaded with, uh, explosives with the GIs on the ground and blew himself up. 14 year old kid. And if you see a, a package of <laughs> something on the ground, you didn't touch it, uh, in the villages and things like that. But I don't think, um, and, um, and I remember one one joke we had uh, when we were on the briefing. He said, um, "Don't shoot unless you're shot at," and we we thought that was rather humorous. Uh, we we'll know we are shot at when either somebody get hit or we hear the bullet go by. Uh, so, uh, but it was uh, be- the war was coming very political. Now, I was very fortunate; I was able to fight the war. I came back to officer personnel director and supported the war from an pers- aviation personnel point of view, and I was there for the drawdown. And that was put me through all the phases, which is very, very interesting and highly political. But
0: you guys
1: didn't, that wasn't a concern why you were there at all I know of no one who, who, uh, we didn't appreciate, like when I got back in, uh, the Air Force Base, uh, Travis, I think it was north of San Francisco, came into Frisco to catch a plane in uniform in uh, the demonstrations and the guys spitting at you and calling you a killer. And um, I went into Huachucra to fly Mohawks from there and we go and fly and pick up Mohawks in New York and we couldn't wear uniforms because you get a lot of harassment from people on on airplanes. Uh, You know, killer, you're over there killing people uh, so we just... We were directed to wear civilian clothes, and you know, when we travel outside the base. Did
0: you guys know any of that was going on while you were there? Did you
1: know? What no, over there you didn't. Uh, over there you didn't know. You you were so busy, you know. You become uh, survival oriented and uh, not politically oriented. You know, and uh, most. I know of no, especially officers, and most of them were officers I was with, and even the young soldiers on the ground, uh, were not really, they were sent there to do a job. Uh, those who didn't really want to go, most of those either went AWOL or they, they deserted or they uh, uh, go go overseas, especially the kids with money would go overseas uh, somewhere to avoid the draft. And, uh, and they also, uh, during that time frame, uh, which I didn't realize until so I went to Nome, Alaska as the advisor to the National Guard, that all you had at that time was being a National Guard unit or reserve unit. You could serve your time there rather than... And uh, here I am up in Nome, Alaska, basically six Eskimo companies and one Indian company and quite a few white guys in there. You go like, whoa. <laughs> but those are people who were coming up there to to live in Nome, be in the Guard, and they didn't have to go to Vietnam. Because they were in the service, and Nome was one of the, well, the Alaska is one of the few organizations in the whole United States that had openings, and that's how they avoided uh, going legally. Legally, it was it wasn't anything illegal; it was legal. When
0: when you first got got to
1: Vietnam, what unit were you assigned to? You uh, the two nights. Uh, the whole time I was there. Okay. To tonight's Assault Helicopter Battalion. Where were you? Where were you based at? Uh, on K. They were just opening up on K when we got there, just for us. We got there in August of '65.
0: Do
1: you know how many missions that you flew, or do you guys did you keep track of that kind of stuff? No, you, you, you uh, in my, uh, no, I don't. You, you don't know you, because a lot of missions were. Uh, the routine. There was no no combat, no uh, well, say combat, no no fire. Go from the PZ to the LZ. And they go on a search and rescue mission. They receive no opposition when you went in. You just drop them off and and get out of there.
0: How long were you there before you were transferred? You became uh, Colonel Moore's
1: aide. Is that, is that well? Not his aide. Uh, I was not assigned to him. I was. Uh, given to him by the helicopter unit. I I was what they call the liaison officer for the helicopter unit, and uh, which Moore did not rate me. uh, I still see the same ratings from my uh, battalion commander in the XO, Uh, actually the S3. Well, what happened then, Moore was a very interesting guy. He, he, he all the way over uh, to Vietnam, he, he, we pretty much knew, uh, I'm sure he knew, also that we were going into um, to the highlands, the way he got into the fight, and the central highlands. And he, um, he studied the, um, the history of the French, In the same area the French got annihilated. He studied that all the way over. He knew the history back and forward, and you can see it in the movie. Uh, when he, in um, the movie, first start, you see the French getting annihilated. There's a reason for that, because that's where they got annihilated. And then all of a sudden, after they get annihilated, here comes the helicopters, and the movie begins. Uh, if you notice, in so he understood the tactics of uh, how the French got annihilated. If you notice in the movie he'll say when they really got hot in there he said they're going to be coming across the dry creek bed cuz that's what they did against the French That's what they did against the French. And then in the movie you also see where uh, we had they had to bring everything in there in the end to save them and the guys in Saigon were shaking their head because see Moore was commanding the 1st of the 7th Custer's unit and they were so afraid that history was going to repeat itself. The first assembly was going to get annihilated again, but they didn't. So I'm not sure. I asked the question. So my job was to work with him, and when he when he would plan at night, he would say, "I want twenty twenty helicopters." He would identify his PZ his pickup zone, he would identify his uh, landing zones by coordinates. And when my job was to look at the difference, the, the distance and everything, and say, for instance, only about two, four or five kilometers or three miles from one to the other, from the PZ to the LZ. Well, and the PZ, the LZ would only hold maybe eight ships, but you got 25. You don't need 25 ships. Because what, what, what the other 17 going to do while the eights in the landing zone? They get the butt shut off. So you, it's better to daisy chain it, you know, and then to, you know, and that's what you have to tell it. No, 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 Colonel, you don't need that. You don't need that. And um, if we were going to move several units, uh, uh, the first, when he became a brigade commander, several units, say the first of the 8th, the second of the 8th, and the first or the second of the 7th, well we had each one of our helicopter lift units had a unit they always supported like C company always supported the 2nd of the 7th A company always supported the 1st of the 7th so those the A company commander and the 1st of the 7th commander got to know each other cuz they were together all the time so when they would be going to move say 3 battalions in one day in, in one 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 mission uh, I have A, B, and C Company and D Company is my gunship. Uh, if the first of the seven moving first, I would say A Company commander. and when I would get everything that Moore wanted, call back that night with the coordinates of uh, the PZ and the LZ and I say we're going to move this one, this one, and this one. So we, we knew exactly where those battalions were located in the field. And I said, okay, A Company, you're gonna report early pick up the retiring commander make your recon uh... b and c company go to the uh... the uh... pick up and, and you now work for a company so a company will make his recon come back move them and when they get ready to move the second to the eighth is going to be moved next i say B company commander break out a ship pick up the second to the eighth commander make your recon so when they finish moving the first to the seventh they all come back to the PZ. I say, everybody works for B Company now. And the next one is second to seventh. I say, C Company, go out, do your recon. So we keep that going. And then when they finish, I would I would designate one company to leave eight, how many ships I wanted for um, for standby. I said, uh, everybody's finished, back to your base, except I want eight, 16 ships on standby at the uh, at the PZ, which is usually a reserve where we got fuel, and everything to to get them ready. So that was my job is to to do that. So it's
0: safe to say or accurate to say that you were your expertise as a pilot was being utilized. Yes, in
1: the that's what he that's what he wanted. That's why he wanted, okay. and that's and this is why I would say he was not a yes man, because if he would have twenty some ships out there trying to figure out where to go, and I'm saying no, 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 right. that's what you need. And uh, we we um heck of a guy to work for. He left you alone, let you do your job, he listened to you, then he's saying, it's decision time, guys, and that's when you shut up, because I've heard everything I want to hear, so let's, I'm ready to tell you how we're going to do it. Great guy. He's still alive, but his wife died about four or five years ago.
0: You still keep in touch at all? No. Did you?
1: Well, when uh, when, when he came back, um, he became the, uh, uh, let me see, He beca- Milpusson commander, when I was at uh, in Washington, and uh, every year at least once a year he'd have everybody over to the house. On he was living at Belvoir then, to you know, hey you guys, let's get together. And when he got ready to um, to uh, do the movie, uh, he sent something out to all of us saying, "Oh, your pictures and little things, send them to me because we want to uh, get them in the movie."
0: When you weren't working, what was it like? What, what kind of things did you do to stay busy? Or was there any time, any, any downtime?
1: You really didn't didn't have any down, down time downtime because uh, it's always something going on. You know, uh, uh, the only time you had was to get out of there and go on R and R. And I had the first shot I had at R and R. I turned it down. I was down there at, to get on the plane. Then they had a GI that came up, got a little 8, 20, 18, 19, 20-year-old guy, and they didn't have room for him, he, you know, it's just one of us that take mine, I'm going back. The second time I went to Hong Kong, uh, five days, something like that, and the third one, I, I didn't get a chance to go, they, uh, I was getting ready to go to Okinawa, and they had a um, tremendous fight broke out, and uh, my boss came to me and said, we were out in the field well I was out there with Moore and he flew in, we were out right on the beach but well, they were on the beach, we were not, we were inland and he said he wanted uh, I, he'd have to cancel my R&R and, uh, and I want to know why and he said well you know we can't move you, all you know, this stuff going on and I say but my assistant here, we're training to take my place in three months, uh, two months when I'm leaving going back to the states and he said, no, 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 you, You're gonna, we, we can't, we got to stay there. I said, I might take a hit right now, you know, I could be in the, in the, in the sights of a, of a, of a you know, sniper, you don't know. You know, and he said, no, you stay. He said, well, he said, well, what we'll do, we'll give you a day off, and we'll come in and bring you, you go down to the beach at uh, Tuiva. And I got very sarcastic, and I said, uh, a beach, what would I do on the beach? said, well, you can go out and bask in the sun. And I held my hand up and I said, I don't think I need it. But and, <laughs> and he, 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 well, what he was doing was, was, was making me angry, uh, intentionally. So I could say, the heck with it. I'm out of here. I'll stay. You know, I said, I don't want to go. I'm to go to the beach for, you know. So just to bring me a cup of beers and i will really be satisfied. But that was the kind of human you had over there. And uh, it was a pretty serious fight, it was very serious and uh, the battalion man was right. He said, no, with all the, the lives at stake here and, and Moore's busy and the snipers are getting close, even where we were out there, you, you get a few sniper rounds. Do you have any family back here, um, married or kids right there? Oh, yeah. I, I left my family at uh, uh, Prairie View and I bought a house there in 62 when I went to Korea. When I came back from Korea, en route to the 11th aerosol, I was going to move him down there until I got down there at at Benning and found out that I was going to be in the field 20 to 25 days a month. That's what we did. And I said, no sense in you. I'd get on the airplane when they had the old Eastern Airlines and they let us fly half-fair then all the GIs could fly half-fair and come home once a month for four or five days and then go back. And, uh, in fact, she had a um, my, my last child was born when I was in Vietnam, uh, March the 15th, 1966. I was on a mission, flying, and got a call from the tower. I just got a, got a um, message from the Red Cross to relay to you that you have a daughter. And I said, hold that thought, I'm a little busy right now. <laughs> so I get on the ground, I'll, I'll talk to you guys right there. Thanks a lot, but let me get on the ground first. Yeah, I have four kids.
0: Do you have any chance to communicate with
1: them while you were over there? No, uh, very little. Uh, my wife said that uh, they didn't like to look at the news, because they were so afraid they would see me on there the wrong way, especially my middle daughter, she would just, when the news come on, you know, about you know, she just go away. <coughs> I imagine
0: it- they may have had a harder time than you did, because they got
1: to see all the negativity on the news. Yeah, they did. You, guys didn't see any of that. Yeah, I. Um, they never talk about it. None of none of my children went military. They didn't want anything to do with it. Um, I don't know. Um, but they. Uh, so then when I got back, I went to Fort Huachuca and for a year. And then uh, they, I had an option of going back to Vietnam. But since I had back-to-back tour career, they said, well, you either go back to Vietnam or you go to Nome, Alaska. So I said, well, I you put it like that. I took Nome. It's good, good for the kids two years. Kids learn a lot because the, uh, there's not much up there. And they had to learn how to be extremely innovative. You know, 24 hours of daylight, 24 hours of darkness. Uh, one one movie, no toys no no snow all over the place, so they had to make themselves uh, they learned a lot learned how to, um, mm-hmm. learn how to learn how they' learned to appreciate a lot of things a lot of things
0: what did you
1: go after the war uh after the war i um, you mean when I got out or when i came out this when, when you i came back, came back world, I, I came back to uh to uh, Fort Huachuca, through Mohawks, because I was Mohawk qualified for a year, and then they sent me to Nome, Alaska, for advisors instead of still going back to Vietnam. When I came out of Nome, I was promotable major, so that I promoted right out of their uh, need lieutenant colonels over there. And I went to Fort Rucker, uh, to the United States Army Aviation Board of Accident Research, USABAR, stayed there only five and a half months, and they... Um, Directed me to come to I use the word directly heavily because I Refused and I refused I told them no two times. I didn't want to come come up to the Washington D.C. area And uh, the third time they reminded me I was in the army and Then what day would I like to report? (laughs) So that I kind of put that to bed and I got here in December I got the Rucker in July of 69. I got here in December of 69 into the Office of Personnel Directorate, Deputy Fund Army Aviation. And that was interesting because uh, I was brought up for specific reasons. Uh, at the time, if you recall, the Army was experiencing tremendous racial problems, riots on bases, ships were catching on fire at sea. Uh, the black soldiers were given the black power salute rather than the normal salute, and you can imagine how they upset some colonels. Uh, and rightfully so. So my job was to, uh, well, they wanted to give uh, more visibility uh, in the in the personnel business. there's A guy named John Putnam, he's no longer with it. He died last year, I believe, in November. He um, he said we got to get more black officers in the personnel business. And I was one the, I was one of the first. I was the first guy on the regular army board. The first black on the regular army board. Little things like that and it makes, it did make a difference uh, we began to uh, develop ways to deal with it and out of all this came the Defense Race Relations Institute down in Florida that was brought on board to, to sensitize uh, because the Army and Navy and the Air Force and Marines were in trouble image wise and I always say the Achilles heel of a system is this image so that's how I got up here and then I stayed here at OPD, and then I went to Desper, and then, uh, where would I go from there? Oh, I went to uh, Headquarters Commandant in McTie, back to Washington, D.C., made for curl. And then uh, I decided that I I wanted to, I wasn't really interested in moving up further, because I, was, I had planned out at age 40. 20 years, Lieutenant Colonel, and go back to school, get my doctorate, and do some things. Well, when they brought me up here, that just rearranged the whole agenda. So uh, I I actually turned down my battalion, because I knew what that would do. Um, Put me on the side and take me out of running, whether major or not, I'll never know. But I made sure I would make it, because what I wanted to do when I got out uh, general officers don't do, uh, general officers don't teach in universities, John officers don't work with, uh, young people, I'm a member of the Rotary Club, I was a district government in Rotary, you don't find, st- but what I want to do with give back and help some people, and, uh, with that, you, that's what I want to do, and, um, I mean, I'm, st- I guess that's why I'm still working, having fun, I'm having fun with these kids, they are just something else.
0: Real quick, back
1: to Vietnam. What, <laughs> what airframe did you fly? Uh, Huey. That's what everybody had to hear. We had the D models. You know, the, as when they brought them over, like it came out just as we getting ready to go, which gave a longer, uh, larger cabin and a uh, longer uh, blade for the lift because we they knew they needed more lift because of the high humidity over there. Because you had to have a little more lift.
0: Came back and flew
1: Mohawks. Who came back and went to Mohawks? I was Mohawk qualified before, of course I, went, before I went over there. It's a uh, twin turbine uh, surveillance plane. It has the old side looking airborne radar at the bottom. It has IR or just regular. What they did in the Mohawks, they used them in the 11th Air Assault to test the close air support concept because all this was about trying to. See what we really needed, and then because they wanted to get the close air support concept, close air support away from the Air Force, they wanted to the transport. That's why a lot of caribous got in there. They wanted to the transport away from the Air Force. We have our own transport, our own close air support. Uh, but it, yeah, the Air Force won that one because <laughs> the Mohawks, after the uh, 11th Air, so we we had them. We had machine guns, uh, rockets, and everything on Mohawks firing, fi- firing them at Benning, testing the the close air support concept. But after Benning, after that went over, the F- the DOD decided nope. So the Mohawks were no longer gunships; they were surveillance ships. The Caribous were they just just phase about when you don't need them.
0: Did you see combat at all in Korea?
1: Oh no, I didn't go to Korea. Uh, no, in six. I mean, when I was there, '63. Oh no. But when I landed in Korea, what's interesting? When I first got in there, that was the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, they were on DEFCON DEF one. When I got, in, I didn't know what DEFCON one was, but I found out very quickly what DEFCON one was. And I went to the first cab then, which was up on the border, on the DMZ. How would you? A tough question, I think, for some people to answer. How,
0: how do? You, how would you? Describe how the war, your
1: war experience changed you. Um, it, uh, I think the wife thinks it's great. Uh, it, you, you learn to appreciate uh, one word, now, in N-O-W. Uh, like one guy, uh, I'll give you an example. There's a guy I'm having breakfast with. Noon, he's in the body bag. And you uh, realize that, you know... I can walk across the street and get hit by a truck. I can drive down the highway, a guy cross the line and smack me. So when I got back, my wife thought I was nuts. She said, well, you know, I always resist. Hey, let's go out dancing tonight. Let's go. The kids want to go to the ball game. Let's go. I mean, because tomorrow, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, you, you gain an appreciation for a sense of humor. And I always tell the class, there's a sense of humor, in any, no matter how bad something is, a sense of humor. Look for the sense of humor. When you're getting shot at, there's a sense of humor in that. The sense of humor is whether than worrying about the shot that might hit you, enjoy the hell out of the cracks. Because if you, if you heard the crack, it's, it's gone. It's gone. Enjoy the cracks. And that's what you learn, and you, you begin to apply that every day. And so I use sensory memory. You can see sensory humor all the time. And I say it's very difficult to die from a heart attack laughing. It's difficult, it is. The old heart won't, won't cooperate with you.
0: <laughs> your thoughts on the war? Now that you've had, now your you're back, had lots of lots of time to think about it. Any thoughts on it? Uh, what
1: if, what if you, oh, you mean, the Vietnam War? Well, I had some uh, experiences uh, when I got back, when I went to Desper. Uh, I was on the, remember in 74, we were looking at, uh, uh, we were going to the Volunteer Army and and from draft to the Volunteer Army, and I was on that committee, and um, and that was uh, very, 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 very interesting. because one general said to, to the committee, he said, we have to be very careful with this. That was 74. He said, it takes this system about by, by 30 years to catch on. And then it, in, th- in 30 years from now, it is the system. So he said, by 2004, somewhere around right in there, it will be the system. He said, once this takes place, he said, the problem going to be that the vast majority of the politicians will have never served. He says, what does that mean? He says, what that means is that he who is never served will be quick to pull the trigger. And that was in 1974, you know, and we kind of giggle. But the generals had some very good insights, very good insights. Another thing, and right after that, we went to the Toll Force concept, And uh, the thinking behind that was very interesting. It will probably never go public. Uh, the general said we can never let the politicians do to us what they did to us in Vietnam they sent us off to war and left the country at home he said no more we're gonna toll force it so what we're gonna do is integrate the uh, the guard and the reserves and the regulars and uh, we're gonna pay the reserves and the guard good money to get ready and when we ring the bell Said, next time we're going to take mom, we're going to take dad, we're going to take uncle, cousin. And uh, I remind my class look at what's on the back of the cars now as opposed to Vietnam. Support the troops. Support the troops. That was not there in Vietnam. And I was very fortunate to be in, you know, sitting in the rooms and working with some of these things. Uh, a lot of them are not really colleges, dis- you know, I don't know how much to classify now. But, um, the concepts of uh very very interesting do you
0: think think we've learned the country a
1: little bit well not really uh one of the things you you they teach you in uh in tactics when you come in as an officer never but never get in a land war in asia it's too big it'll consume you we got away with it in korea because korea was a peninsula he said, don't go in there. He said, "It's like China, why would we want to attack China? If we beat them, what are we going to do with them? <laughs> we could occupy the country. We don't have enough people to occupy the country, so leave them alone. Uh, work with them the best we can. And China has never left its borders unless threatened, historically. They, they, they came out in Korea, but they had, had MacArthur not crossed the Yellow River, but they never would have been there. So we learned from that. We also learned from that by going to Vietnam. You notice we never went into Vietnam, North Vietnam. A hundred miles from a Chinese border, because here they come again, most likely. So we we bombed them, we shot them, you know, we did these things, but we never really we didn't knock out the Red River dikes, we didn't cause them a lot of hardships, we left them alone, because we didn't know what the Chinese were going to do. And uh, it was very interesting. And uh, I don't know how much of this is classified. Is any of this classified? <laughs> <coughs> One of the um, things that was interesting, um, the drawdown, we knew, the personnel people knew a year before when Kissinger cut the deal with the Chinese and the Russians, that the official date, approximately, the war would officially be over. Uh, But one part of the deal was that we could not give any indication that we had cut a deal. Which means we had to continue training at the same rate. We had to continue sending people to Vietnam, knowing that some of them would be back in three months, unless. And this is why, if you notice, at the end of the war, we were dumping people at, at the port. We would say, hey, yours nothing. Finish your time out. And all the people went to flight school. Finish your time out in the guard. Finish your time out in the reserves. You out of the regular army. So it's very interesting. And uh, I had something like eleven thousand pilots. I had to figure out we're going to put up right. so it was interesting
0: people are going to be watching this interview presumably maybe mm-hmm. a hundred years down the road the kids grandkids great-grandkids Is there anything you'd like to tell them want them to remember about you about, about the war like your fellow soldiers anything
1: no I just think it was an honor to have served um, And um, it's a career that I chose and I I have no regrets. Uh, I learned a lot, I achieved a lot, and it's been great for me.
0: Sir, you mentioned, you started a great story about how when you talked to your father when you were young Mm -hmm. about wanting to fly, can you um, expand just a little bit more on that and, and Take the viewer back to the explanation of what type of error it was, and the and the, yeah. and the hurdles you would have had, and the father's interpretation. Of
1: it. Well, uh, I was five years old in nineteen thirty-nine. I bought in thirty-four. Well, you have to look at it from my father's perspective. Uh, back in thirty-nine, uh, that was total segregation. then. total, there was no in Texas, southern total segregation. So his perception uh, vision was much more limited than mine by experience he says no this will never happen and because of this he said um, you don't. you, you really want, don't want, you want to go and do what everybody else is doing now because industry had no interest in me uh, at that time he says, you're going to go and go to school and be the first one to graduate from college and the family and come back and teach at a colored school center the word colored was used then and I remind the class I went from colored to uh, Negro to what else was I uh black African American went through all four phases of that and uh, that was his but he was limited by his experience and he just couldn't see and I and I I didn't I had more I figured this, this thing because I thought the thing would change one day and uh, so I did and uh and uh, when when they um, integrated the armed forces, to me that was it. That was it. And my father, we, we, no one ever envisioned that that would happen, not in the black community. Did you run into any problems in your professional career with with people that were stubborn on? Uh, oh yeah. Type of change? Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. That's uh, when the army draws from random, which it does. Uh, whatever that society, you got it. You can't avoid it. If there's is out there, you got drugs. If there's racists out there, you got racists. If there's whatever that is there, it just has more control over it. But the person that you bring in, they're still what they are. They just have to st- work within that system and survive. Uh, but you learn how to, uh, you learn as a uh, young black that uh, uh, average is not in your vocabulary. You know there are some people out here that's not going to treat you fair. All, and I used to say, all whites are not blue-eyed devils, but there are enough out there to make your life interesting. And uh, But you can't say everybody's that way. Uh, in other words, I would not be sitting here. <laughs> you know, if that was ever, I would not be sitting here. And you have to learn how to, uh, uh, as I always, uh, teach my class, not from this perspective but I always use the same principle Uh, in many cases you have to appear to be losing to win appear to be losing to win Uh, and you have to, you can't do average you got to always do things faster, better quicker, even though you will not get credit for it, that's irrelevant because that becomes part of you part of you, and at some point your excellence will win it at some point. At some point. Uh, yes, I'd like, I'd like to expand on Greg's and ask, what was your father's uh, viewpoint? How did it change over the years after World War II, with the success of the Red Tails and, and integration, and, and de- uh, you know, when the uh, services de- um, integrated? Did, did support go more towards you? He never um, he never stopped me from doing anything. See, what happened was <laughs> very interesting. Uh, when I finished high school, uh, I knew that I had to go to a college with an ROTC, a historical black college ROTC. Well, he didn't want me to go to that college. He wanted me to go to a church school. And I said, no. And he said, well, he had a very endearing term for me, which was not child abuse. He says, you stubborn bastards. You always want to do things your way. And I said, yeah, but I want to do this. He said, on my money, you will not. So he didn't, the first year out of of high school, uh, he didn't, he said, on your own. So I said, okay, uh, I don't have the money. I'll go to work. So I went to work and saved money. And he said, where are you going to stay? I said, I hope to stay here. And he said, okay, but you're going to pay me he made me pay but what he was doing I didn't understand what he was doing was pushing me to my limit and say his his bottom line was are you serious prove it but it didn't come out that way he pushed me and when he saw I was saving my money I had more money in the bank than he had in six months and I wasn't with me he called me in and he said you are serious and I said yeah he said if you do this on your own you won't want to come back home. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, why should I? Uh, I need your help. You won't give it to me. Uh, If I do it myself, I'm paying you to stay here, I'll owe you nothing. And then he said, okay, okay, let's work it out. So I got to college at 16 rather than 15, which was not a bad thing. It was was a good thing. It gave him another year to, to mature. And uh, when I got there, he, he was behind me 100%. And he see me, see everything. He lived to, uh, when I got my wings in 56, because that was just when he lived there. When I got my doctorate, I brought him up for graduation. So he lived to see everything come in place. And he would just sit and uh, and, uh, you know, just, you know, I you know I just, He didn't say much. He was not to talking, but you could could see the expression on his face. And to give you a little humor on this, I I sang in the Glee Club when I was in college. And uh, the whole time I was in college, he only sent me $15. And that was to buy a blazer for the Glee Club. Well, I never bought it. Uh, Because I was one of the few that had the money, so I blew it. So when I came home that year, I lied and said, uh, I said, oh, they got them down in school. We can't bring them in. We have to keep them. Can't use them every day. And uh, okay, he never said another word about it until 1993. We were sitting on the porch in my house there, and he says, "You know, you never showed me that blazer." <laughs> you know, you know that was 40 years later ago. Like I didn't. He said, "No, he just got a smile and went back to sleep." <laughs> he knew. He knew. But no, he was he was extremely proud. Uh, he knew. And uh, once he, what he was doing was making sure that I was serious in his way. And he pushed me when he saw that this guy is going to do it with or without me. And he said, "He said we a family. We got to remain family. Let's work it out." I hope you
0: enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime Experience. Or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.